And we're back. Welcome to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. I am also Mike, and as promised, I have a co-host, a guest host today. That is Andrew Morgan of the NOMCAST. Welcome back to Mike, Mike, and Oscar, Andrew, and, and welcome to your first Oscar race checkpoint, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm very honored. You know, always ask the, the Netflix guy to analyze uh, the larger thing at World. That's what we want nowadays, right? Netflix is taking over, so I might as well take over your show. That's how I feel this is going, uh, and I appreciate it. I think, thank you for having me on. No, I th- I'm thrilled you're here. Uh, I'm thrilled for a lot of reasons because we had one of our better movie-going experiences together uh, in, in a while, just at, just in general movie-going experiences. That was a lot of fun with No Time to Die. And we both saw uh, The Power of the Dog at different times at the New York Film Festival. You were there for the centerpiece. I kind of did the encore day, uh, Hot and Heavy, yesterday, which was a lot of fun. So we are recording this, for everybody's knowledge, Sunday morning. Uh, we're getting ahead because I'm going to need the full week to edit this. Mike One is on vacation, a well-deserved vacation. I am going to try my hand at editing. You just volunteered to kind of line me up, which I really appreciate. So this is my <laughs> task to screw up now here to forthwith. So hopefully if you if you hear anything weird, that's because you got a rookie editor. But otherwise, uh, yeah, man. So th- thanks for all your help, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited. No, no problem. And and. Echo those sentiments about Bond. Can't do it any better. You see it in IMAX. I'm there to cover Mike One's eyes when Ana Diarmas' skirt goes too high. <laughs> you know, everything was in alignment. Everything was a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun. Uh, so I'm glad uh, Glad all that happened, man. Back, back in the movie theaters, right? That's what we want. Uh, it felt so good these last three weeks. I mean, Alice Tully Hall had 1,100 people. That Bond screening we had had beautiful local women which again I'm just so impressed the the <laughs> the beautiful women that showed up to our first night of James Bond was it just blew my mind and, or maybe I just don't get out that much which, which it's not a maybe it's All true possible yeah it's definitely possible uh but yeah the bond we wanted to talk about the box office. We're a little early uh, on the f- official numbers. Again, it's Sunday morning, but I don't think it matters because we're kind of just going to, you know, talk about the box office recovery if it's a recovery and uh, kind of the general scope of it. So, No Time to Die looks to open at around sixty million, which Mike One has texted me about probably a dozen times already. He predicted 63.5 on our prepisode. So kudos right. to him. Yes, I he, he, he's he been texting me. He's like, I wish I could bet on it because <laughs> 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 he would have made a lot of money. I even pressed him, Andrew, on like an over-under. Like, all right, if you make the 63.5 and over or an under, and he did say a slight under. So that might yeah. be where it winds up. But uh hey. I think it's going to be like a $250 million worldwide first 10 days for James Bond. It did 121 in its first week internationally. And you add the 60 million, you, you, you know, you subtract 40% or whatever, 40% of the international gross. You factor in opening up in additional markets. And my guess is a quarter of a billion. Um, I think 
Venom kind of wowed us with a first week. So the week before to cover kind of two weeks here, they did 140 in its worldwide first week, but it didn't open in many international markets. That's a 90 million stateside opening off a $110 million budget. So people were going nuts. Uh, the first Venom actually did something like, you know, 400% of its domestic box office elsewhere. So Venom's right. still looking like it's going to be a huge money earner. So that all seems good. Like, this is a solid Bond box office. It is strong. We're wondering about the what it's got to make. Venom seemed incredible in its first week, but the problem with Venom is, according to Forbes, it is fell, has fallen off a cliff, Andrew. It's 76% drop from its first weekend to its second weekend. It looks like 31 million domestic uh, second week for Venom, Let There Be Carnage. I can't help. I can't help my concern. I'm still concerned, and I'm wondering from your perspective, because I know you follow this like me, and you definitely follow it from a Netflix angle, you know, is this box office recovery? How much? What sort of films are working right now? You're always trying to parse through that with uh, the Netflix offerings as well. Yeah, I think uh, box office recovery, as as it is, is kind of limited right now. There's mm-hmm. a couple things at play. Uh, one, I mean... W- Everyone keeps focusing on these major blockbusters and how they're doing, which is a decent barometer, right? Right. I mean, you're seeing Bond make those numbers. It's similar to Spectre numbers. So, you know, you're looking at 2015 as a, a, you know, an echo point. That's pretty great that, you know, you can look back that far ago and Mm -hmm. still be okay. Um, But, you know, the big budget things aren't the things that maybe we should be always focusing on we should be seeing uh the fact that like you said that fell off uh you know venom 2 fell off why did it fall off it's because there's not a lot of movies out at the movie theater right now we're we're still set up for multiplexes we're still set up for like so many movies out all at the same time anyone who wanted to see bond over this past weekend didn't have any trouble. There's no sellouts. You know, everybody's right. just getting right to it. Uh, same thing with Venom 2. Anybody who wanted to go see it, what's the competition? So, you know, if you're seeing that big of a fall off, it's because there's no, the opening weekend means so much more now. Yeah. So if you're not seeing a supremely high number, then that should be actually be a, a big concern because it is going to continue to fall off. Um, internationally, that's great too. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's where a lot of these things are going to make money. But the big thing that I said to you was like, Papa Spielberg predicted this many <laughs> moons ago yeah. that only large scale, big budget films will go theatrical and the indies will have a very hard time getting theatrical distribution and will most likely land on streaming services. He was mostly right before the pandemic. And now in the current moment, he is dead on. Right. I mean, yeah. even. Even Disney, who holds a lot of the cards of these large-scale IPs, were like, we don't know whether we want to put something in the theaters. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's always confusing. Warner Brothers obviously did the day-and-date thing. Um, The big thing we need to keep an eye on is the upcoming award season films because, you know, is something like House of Gucci going to make money at the box office like years prior it might have because it has stars and a brand-name family being portrayed? You know, do certain directors still play? Because we're going to see PTA, Edgar Wright, uh, Del Toro, all those going out to the theaters. We're still waiting on, I mean, I listened to IndieWire Screen Talk as much as you do, Mike. And, mm-hmm. you know, they were concerned, uh, did the African-American audience come back yet? 
you know, maybe Candyman's success says yes, but a lot of metrics don't really say that. You know, they're kind of waiting for King Richard to see maybe if that will get th- that, you know, demographic back into the movie theaters. So I guess we have a lot of wait and see. The one nice thing, I guess, if you want to point to if you're an indie supporter mm-hmm. is the Green Knight made its money back. And that was, you know, over the summer. Uh, you and I went to go see that again with, with Mike one and we were in a packed house, Mike. Now, again, right. a smaller house, but a packed house on an opening weekend. So that's got to be encouraging in some ways, too, that this still can happen if you're saying a 24 a neon movie. Yeah, it is. It is a bit of a muddle in my brain right now because I just came from a festival where I spent eight nights in New York eight days and nights in some cases, seeing three and four movies in some cases. Alice Tully Hall seats 1,100 people, and you have this enthusiasm, this celebration of what kind of movies. Most of them are the indie, the art house, the avant-garde, the smaller budget, the medium budget. I mean, Dune was there, which we'll talk about, but most of these movies that are being celebrated at, with such huge audiences, like we said, are the power of the dogs, are these movies that where they destined for, well, a lot of them in reality are destined for the streaming services. This was something happening years before uh, what's happening now with, uh, you know, you open or you die, right? I mean, that's what you said, and, and I agree yeah. with it wholeheartedly. And, and now I think I heard some... I heard some talk that Venom is still being looked upon as something that will play well for longer because that's what the first movie did. The, fr- the first movie played really well internationally, and they're not quite as worried. They think it was just such a box office boon in its first weekend that they're excited, and it's also tracking kind of evenly with the first film. Now, September was not kind to these mid-budget movies, to the rest of the to the uh, slate. We had The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Dear Evan Hansen, Blue Bayou, Respect from August. I mean, all these movies kind of, the second they could and the second they can, now they're going to go to PVOD, which we've seen a lot of quick pivots in regards to, all right, the second my window's up, we're going to streaming, we're going to PVOD as soon as humanly possible. Whereas, you know, something like Paw Patrol that did Day and Date and Candyman, which, again, p- kind of played for a short window, and, and Halloween Kills, it's h- kind of harder to parse through those. Like, you could tell the first four, as the, as the mid-budgets, were not theatrically successful. successful. Right. But Candyman looks like it was at least broke even. Paw Patrol, now with Halloween Kills, these seem like day and date possible successes so i guess the next question is you know what's your sense of how this is going to affect streaming and streaming competition and uh, because we know that these films that have gone day and date they have not worked theatrically as much recently uh to the you know for the most part especially with hbo max and malignant etc but they have worked for boosting subscriber numbers. This has been part of the Netflix playbook since you and I ever I, I met, right? So right. what's your sense of, the, of what's, what's uh, the box office is doing for streamers and with streamers? I, I don't see a lot of correlation between box office and streamers because at the end of the day, we're going to kind of see 
everybody kind of start doing the same thing just everybody's playing catch up right now as far yeah. as the streaming landscape goes i mean you you mentioned a lot of things there so i'll try to <laughs> i'll try to <laughs> pick them out one by one so you know ultimately and we'll get to this point in a minute but like we're gonna have to figure out and the studios are still trying to figure this out and it's a big deal of what is a theatrical movie and what is a streaming movie hmm. and you know right now we're in kind of a tough spot where you mentioned respect dear evan hansen eyes of tammy faye blue bayou going forward are those gonna be more streaming movies are they gonna take less risks yeah. or is it just that these movies got you know some of them got pretty bad reviews or or mediocre reviews or didn't have great marketing campaigns Mm-hmm. No one's going to wait around anymore. Unfortunately, the <laughs> the the actual uh, wait and see approach trying to parse out, you know, did we do anything wrong? It's like, no, no, no. Let's just put it on streaming and yeah. say it was a wild success because all the metrics are created by the streamers for the most part uh, outside of maybe some Nielsen metrics that will help you out to figure that Samba, out. Samba, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, something. Um, but you're right. I mean, Candyman and Paw Patrol, um, you know, like a lot of these movies, you know, Halloween Kills to Come, you either are going to see quick pivots or you're going to see success in day and day if your streaming service doesn't have a lot of subscriptions. Right, right. <laughs> because, uh, you know, parents, you know, they, sometimes they're just like, I want to get these kids out of the house. You mm-hmm. know, it's as mm-hmm. simple as that. We've been in an 18-month uh, you know, problem of a pandemic here where we don't know what to do with our children. Um, you know, what's safe, what's not. We're going into the fall and winter months here in the Northeast. Like, mm-hmm. what can we do safely inside or the perception of safety inside? You know, it, it's a lot of things to consider. And, you know, we're going to start going back and forth between, okay, we'll, we'll do this one at home. We'll do this one uh, in the theaters to make it an event, birthday parties, all these things. Mm-hmm. It's a lot to consider. I'm a parent. There's always something to consider, let alone trying to parse out the the uh, you know the cinematic landscape. Um, but Halloween Kills, I mean, the whole Peacock thing. I mm-hmm. think a lot of people uh, and horror in general has done really well. Um, you know, this year, especially yes. Quiet Place Two was a was a hit. Uh, Conjuring Three, even though that was day and date, did good numbers. Uh, I think. You know, and Candyman, we already mentioned. I think Halloween Kills could do the exact same thing because a lot of those hardcore fans want to see this in a movie theater. And then also, you know, just hardcore horror fans in general like that experience of seeing this in a in a movie theater. And then, you know, you'll get maybe some peripheral fans if they have a Peacock subscription, you know, maybe they watch it at home. You know, maybe their their interest level is a little bit lower and you're going to get maybe added subs that way or something of that nature. But, you know, it's a franchise. So, you know, it could work uh, both ways and it'll be interesting to see how that lays out. But I wouldn't be shocked if it did a decent theatrical number. I'm rooting for it. I think uh, the subscription viewership kind of overall matters with with something like Peacock Premium. And uh, the fact that everybody's going to realize that once next week or at the end of this, actually probably when this week, uh, this episode's coming out, Halloween Kills, you have to pay six bucks, <laughs> you know, right, to get yeah. the Peacock Premium or you got to pay the 10 bucks to, you know, do it without ads or I forget what the 
differentiation is there, but I'm going to pay it for my rewatches, I believe. <laughs> They're going to at sure. least get $10 of my money for the rewatches because I think Mike and I are going to do a, an opening night for it next week. You're welcome to join us. I'll have to get you on that. Again, now, uh, when this, <laughs> this episode's coming out. But that's the thing. Like We're the movie-loving folk you know and and our our listeners are as well i'm wondering what the more casual fan is thinking about a lot of these offerings because Candyman worried me a little bit Candyman worried me in the sense that it, it had a really strong opening weekend 20 something million it had a, a a good legs solid legs i think it topped off around 80 million total so it looks you know that's three times it's 25 million dollar budget or whatever three times plus so it was yeah. profitable in theaters and then it kind of went to pvod which universal has been you know uh they have been known to do they've have had sex success or sex they've had success <laughs> some of the first success with pvod they were the first one to really go all in on it this pandemic so they have pushed it towards pvod pretty quick at that $20 price tag for Candyman. So I'm worried that it maybe didn't do as well or whatever the cuts were it didn't do they were you know they pushed it there. Now Conjuring 3 is a different test case because it is day and pure day and date and and to take Conjuring 3 and to cross that with Malignant is just two different worlds. Like it Conjuring is. 3 was I mean, these three horror movies, it's three wildly different test cases. Like Candyman, profitable in theaters. Conjuring 3, profitable in theaters, and also probably a boon on the streaming service. So I'm sure that was one of the things that cinched it for HBO Max. We have to keep everything on both. It's working for both. Godzilla worked for both. But they've added subscri subscriptions. They, they definitely added like 20, 30 million subscriptions. So the mission accomplished there, but it does probably also take away from the theatrical gross. Like you said, what do you make in a movie-going event in theaters? What do you make a movie-going event at home? Netflix has the viewership built in. They have the numbers there. If they put something on the streaming service it, it, and it's seen, it could blow up in terms right. of just this viral success and we've we've seen criticisms of it we've seen you know from patty jenkins etc we've also seen you know versions of viral marketing and versions of you know just uh, hits that have hit the stratosphere in terms of like a squid game right now yeah <laughs> which is just unprecedented kind of something coming out of nowhere it's not unprecedented because something like pulp fiction would have done that in movie theaters all those years ago so I'm kind of wondering now where Netflix is is looking in terms of their movie slate because they got some big ones coming like Red Notice, Tudum, uh, <laughs> CinemaCon, the film festivals. They're using all of these to an extent in previous years and and at least two of those three this year. What do you think about Netflix's slate? compared to these others uh these other major streamers in a way and, and and what their netflix's strategy is well before i get to the netflix part mike because the one thing that i actually do want to know your opinion whether you have an insight into this too i think the one thing that the the definitely the peripheral fan or even a lot of podcasters like ourselves or film critics don't really know hmm. how much are they making in stock in like investments here 
versus actual like because the subscriptions is nice but it's also a bellwether to see if they're getting money in the stock market if they're getting support in the stock market going yeah. forward i mean because a lot of these again they're more tech companies than they are studios or they're kind of blending the two themes i want to know whether it means more to them that something is perceived as a hit or whether it actually needs tangible evidence to show that it is a hit like like a box office return or or you know any of these kind of numbers that you've seen netflix coming out so you know if you have any opinions on that i will gladly take it but Part of the reason right. I asked all that is because of what you mentioned, the stuff coming out of CinemaCon and, and, and ta-dum, uh, still not, <laughs> uh, no, I'm still out on that name, completely out on that name. It became a punching bag. I will say, even as a Netflix person, I'm out on that. It's wild that that actually went along. Um, but, yeah, I, I, to read Hastings at CinemaCon, talked up putting more Netflix films uh, out for true committed theatrical runs coming up. and But meanwhile, you got Disney Plus, HBO Max, Amazon all trying to, you know, fill fill the coffers, get more content mm. for their streaming services to match the barrage of content Netflix already is delivering every single week. Soon you're going to have basically the singularity, Mike, where all the studios <laughs> will have streamers and Netflix will have a stronger studio and you won't be able to tell them apart. And that's why the Patty Jenkins thing, I kind of laugh in a way because mm. she's like, yeah, I would never make a movie for, for a streamer or like Netflix. And then she, but at the side of her mouth, she was like, yeah, but I make a TV show for them. What's the difference? <laughs> We're all the same thing. You either want to work with these people or you don't because eventually they're all going after the same dollars of where the people are. And right now, Netflix is basically, they learned a long time ago, they are TV. Yeah, They are TV. And I don't mean that they can't make a good movie. I just mean that they want everything all in one place for anyone who wants any type of movie at any time. They mm -hmm. are, as you mentioned, like kind of the Walmart, you know, they're, they're the, the shopping mall. There's like, oh, I didn't like this store. Wait two seconds. I passed by another one. You know, so they have the subscription numbers they pivoted globally which was huge for them uh compared to a lot of these other streamers mm -hmm. they know what they're doing but right now like i said in previous stuff in this conversation i mean just they're gonna have to now determine what is a theatrical play and what is a streaming play but i think they have a better sense of that because they've been <laughs> the streaming giant for so long yeah they they've definitely prioritize the streaming play and i think they've they've let's just say they've been willing to try and 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 dip their foot in the pool on the theatrical side of things but they've never really kind of invested more than maybe you know that last Zack snyder was that their widest release the the zombie movie there army of the dead army of the uh, dead i guess yeah i mean I saw that maybe two weeks out, but you're seeing a lot of the award season stuff that's going to come out, by the way, on sale now, advanced tickets for The Harder They Fall. I just got that email. Uh, nice. You know, so if, if anybody's interested, I, I, I'm interested in seeing it, though early reviews don't look uh, as tasty as I would like, but uh, I will definitely be there. You know, they're even doing the Thursday night thing. I'm like, all nice. right, let's do it. Um, but a lot of these films... Harder They Fall, Passing, Power of the Dog, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the Unforgivable. A lot of these movies that we've talked about are coming out with either film festival debuts or theatrical distribution of a couple weeks or mm-hmm. both. Right. So, And they've always done that with their Oscar slate. I guess what I'm saying is Netflix hasn't necessarily prioritized for the box office rake for the opening weekend. No. It's only been the platform release. It's only been the you know, the meet the requirements for an award slate kind of thing. It's not necessarily designed to pop and to be the mid-budget movie that makes, you know, three times its uh, production budget to, uh, you know, get them in the black. They've always designed these launches to kind of just get enough buzz so that people click on it on the streaming service because they know what they are and they know what they're about and they know what their priorities are at Netflix I don't necessarily know if these other services look at it that way yet, or if they can, if they have the luxury of looking at it that way yet, and especially because of how they've been designed. Like HBO Max, it's very clear that they want it to be successful, that they need it to be successful on both with the day and the, you know, the date theatrical streaming releases. And I'm wondering if the imperative is still there to do as well theatrically going forward for them. I wonder... You know, I think Peacock, I think everybody over there is probably saying Halloween Kills needs to give us 5 million subscribers. If it, if they get us 5 million new subscribers for, and hopefully 2.5 million of those people stick, oh my God, it's a financial boon for us. So the, yeah. the, the stock market, I've been reading Deadline, I've been reading some things at the Hollywood Reporter and IndieWire to an extent, really Deadline's been covering it the best. Mike one knows more of this than I do, I would say, but yes, I do think the stock market valuations, they do go up for these other streaming services when the launches are organized. Like it went up for HBO max. It certainly has gone to Disney plus. You see that publicized all the time uh, in terms of their stock market price. Netflix, you see it on the flip side. It's almost ridiculous that the Netflix, subscription numbers only go up by however many thousand and they're actually losing money on their valuations right they're the biggest and the strongest one so they were overvalued the stock market has this like year ahead correction half a year ahead corrections where everything bubbles and that's why i don't put any money on the stock market stock market i don't know about you (laughs) i just don't do it i know mike one plays it a little more than me but i it feels like gambling it feels like everything is you know, all in advance. So the thing is that matters to them. I know it matters to them and that's why they keep announcing things. And that's why no news is good news, but some news better be good news for your stock market price. So if you release news, it better be good news uh, in terms of, you know, the, the fact that Samba was releasing numbers or whatever. And I'm sure they're concerned with that uh, in, a, in a major way at every one of these major studios. So that is something new into the equation here. But what I don't think is new is that they're going for these subscription dollars. And I think pandemic kind of forced the hand to, of all these uh, of all these <clears throat> studios or production houses get involved and get interlinked with the streaming services to the point where we had even a few mergers and acquisitions. But now we have, now we have a rising tide lifting all boats. And you you mentioned it earlier, the eventuality of the money 
or the bubble bursting or the the well running dry or the, the the dollars having to be reallocated and I don't want to say redistributed, but basically people are going to have to balance their budgets, their entertainment spending budgets at some point. Right now, you know, you and I will we'll go to a film festival or we're, we're probably willing to spend a little more on entertainment because what else is there to do? We don't have the bustling social lives of our pre-pandemic <laughs> world. We don't. Uh, I mean, none of us yeah. can, so we're not spending the money there. Eventually... This is going to be a situation where I'm wondering if cord cutting increases all the more. I'm wondering if the streaming wars finally happen. This seems to be a question I ask you every time we talk, never mind every <laughs> time we talk on a podcast. So, right. Like, when do you think this hits? Has this shown you signs? Uh, you know, has cord cutting seemed to be a thing to you? Uh, you? Do you have more of a pulse on this, hand on the pulse of this? I mean, I have a couple of takes. I mean, the the big thing you got to look at is, you know, cord cutting has been going on since Netflix really started taking hold as right. like a solid kind of steady and yeah. and right and and obviously you know we had to wait for technology to kind of catch up a little bit. You know, people are still doing the DVD. <laughs> Netflix has always been on the cutting edge and just waiting for everyone to catch up. Right, right. right. like everybody was like. Oh, you know, Blockbuster and and all your indie uh, cool uh, you know video sure. stores. That's great. No, we're gonna bring DVDs. We're gonna just mail them to you. Okay, and mm-hmm. then you know we go into streaming, and then they're ahead of the curve on that. But then they had to learn a lot of that business. Then they kind of perfected a lot of that, and then everybody's trying to catch up to them once again. This is gonna keep happening. Um, the big thing about cord cutting, as it were is I think because we've been doing the cord cutting for over a decade now yeah. uh, with how much Netflix has been a big part and now all these extra options have been a part of this thing, the people who wanted to cut the cord have mostly done so. And I, I think, uh, you know, it turns out people didn't really care about the price as much, hmm. um, but they definitely cared about having a ton of choices, a ton of content, and less or no commercials. That seems to be the big deal. They didn't want to be sold. They want to have the power in their hands. They said a long time ago they wanted to go a la carte. They wanted mm. to pick the channels they wanted. They wanted to do all this stuff. Cable said no because <laughs> they were raking it. They were like, we got you. And then they're like, no, you don't. And then they left. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that happened along there. Um, and I think a lot of our generation were, were the people who kind of started to do that. But, mm. you know. There are a lot of people that are not our generation, our our aunts and uncles and and parents and everything else. They all still have cable and they will for a long time. Uh, You know, so you're probably still going to see that kind of at least numbers stagnate for the next 15 to 20 years, as long as there's enough content still fed to that machine. But, yeah, I think it's still going to be propped up. You're not going to see a large scale exodus. And maybe we did in the last decade. Uh, yeah. With our generation leaving and going over to stuff. So I, I would imagine a lot of that stuff has already happened. Subscriber numbers will probably level off soon. Um, basically, the main things of ways to scale up is if you're a big streamer who is doing well domestically, you got to find a way to grow globally. And Netflix already did that. That's why they're this massive success because they have, you know, huge footholds all over the world. And they mm-hmm. did it very easily because they didn't have the competition. And they still don't. Like, HBO Max is very much a domestic product. 
very mm-hmm. few countries outside of that. You know, you have Amazon starting to try to increase those things. but And Disney, I think with, what is it, Star? I think they acquired or whatever to make them uh, kind of have more of their products at least out globally, but maybe not them, but they bought them out. So again, the landscape is still shifting, but that seems to be the thing that they want to do uh, to make more money, to, you know, grow in that yeah. way. Uh, also, you know, it's just like old TV and <laughs> TV has been forever. Don't be out bitter, outplayed by your streamers. You got to be on the hot content or you got to be creating it in house and owning your content. All those things are still in play. Content creators have never had more power than they do now. You're seeing all these major deals from all the streamers trying to keep them on the platform, making things for them. And also pro sports. I mean, that's been kind of the thing that the reason why people didn't cut the cord for a long time, you know, because they're keeping that on. I watched, uh, you know, I'm sorry to say this. I watched the Jets game opening Mm -hmm. weekend on Paramount+. Plus. Because wow. it was CBS. So it's like, okay. And Amazon. I watched the Thursday Night Football game the other day. On that, Peacock will have NFL football, their Sunday Night Football slate, on you know, Peacock there too. As long as that keeps feeding me, I'm mm-hmm. definitely not going back to, you know, to, to cable for that. You know? And I don't think a lot of people are. So the more that those things kind of go towards streaming, that can get you a little boost. But... Yeah, I think it's going to stay pretty close to what it is with some of these early streamers, the newer streamers, getting a little bigger as they grow internationally and getting some more assets uh, locally, domestically. Well, I tell you, I haven't haven't felt the urge to cut the cord necessarily until now where I have Comcast Xfinity and it's so intertwined with my internet and and I love how... They provide the internet the way they do, and, and, and it's just all stable, and it always works. And if something goes wrong, the technicians hear really quick, and it's just, good God, they do a nice job with that. But for the first time, I am ripping pissed at them because MSG, mm. and this is a James Dolan problem. Nobody really cares about this, but I have to say it. The fact that, <laughs> that my New York Knickerbockers are no longer on my cable, I had to... For even for the preseason, I had to pay $60 for Fubo TV. And Fubo TV is a wonderful <laughs> product. And I may go all Fubo TV plus streaming services after this because <laughs> at this point, I need to see my Knicks. I need to see my, you know, Yankees, yes, network. So Fubo, I don't think they have yes, but they have MSG. What the hell am I going to do right now? Or I got to change. I got to change subscribers. I'm really just dismayed by this. I, I figured. I'm going to give it a month. I'm going to wait and see if MSG and Comcast come back to the table. But I'm, am I going to pay two months worth of an extra 60 bucks? Are you kidding me? I, yeah, I'm especially just, because of blackout rules. You can't watch on League Pass either. Well, that's the so. thing. I can't even get League Pass. I can't even get – yeah. So there's no other way than Fubo TV. So there's a, you know unpaid ad for Fubo TV, which is brilliant. It's got all the – I might just go that what route. I, I, that might be it. Mike yeah, Cord, Mike maybe. making Fubo, man. That's, Mike, that's the way. <laughs> it's all going Fubo, as uh, <laughs> as we knew it always would. So, okay, uh, beyond the Fubo factor here, I do want to kind of, you know, rehash what Netflix has offered a little bit and, and, and what they have coming forward because they got some competition with Halloween Kills and Dune. So, I don't know, tail of the tape 
and I and I, I I almost fear asking you this question because you're a Netflix guy, but you're also a brutally honest one. Where I mean, Halloween Kills was meant for cinemas. It's a huge IP. Dune, same deal. I'm going to review that at the end of the episode. But where is Netflix and their products stacking up to to what other people have for the month of October, for instance? Well, we're going from Fubo to Fubar, Mike. Uh, you know, we have a lot of issues <laughs> with uh, the content at the moment. I think, you know, and again, where a lot of streamers just didn't have content, mm-hmm. you know, especially cinematic content, you know, movie content in the last few months, people are just like, okay, well, we're waiting for this. Like, if I'm Disney Plus, there's a big distance between the last hit that they had and waiting for Encanto, right? But mm-hmm. nobody's saying like, oh, God, I'm going to get rid of there should be a panic at Disney Plus. Right. No, no. They we just have ran, to keep it. Yeah. Right. They just ran out of content. Right. Because a lot of things, the pandemic has caught up to everybody. And I think Netflix is no different. They put it hard out there. Right. They were like, we have a new movie every week. That is true. But it doesn't mean they're good. Uh, so, <laughs> so, you know, they, they made their promise. And, and some of these things are very watchable. But, you know, I think, you know. In the in the last few months, I've had a hard time trying to keep the wheels spinning over at the Nomcast. You know, trying to look at you know what is good. I mean, Worth was pretty good uh, right. as far as like uh, you know, kind of that mid tier. Like it's not awardsy probably, but it's still very solid movie. Something very watchable and timely at yes. the time. That was good. You you know, uh, Kate was watchable, but. You know, it didn't match my expectations. It was definitely, you know, it's almost like the typical, you know, cinematic stuff. Uh, you know, August mm-hmm. and September are kind of dumpish months, you know, and we definitely felt it. I haven't felt really strong about the Netflix content since like mid-July. Right. You know, and where, it's dog days, right? I mean, you, typically in, in, uh, in August and September, like you're saying, and I just to, sorry to interrupt, but I think this year cinematically was the opposite. Like typically Labor Day is not a big cinematic weekend, but this year Shang-Chi yeah. became a huge colossal blockbuster because of the pipeline being backed up for so long, like you said, with the pandemic. So now that cinema's kind of bursting and flourishing to an extent, uh, at least with the tent poles. It, 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 at a time when, you know, maybe Netflix didn't expect to have to compete with that. Exactly. For sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's hard to be like, oh, yeah, we have Shang-Chi. It's like, hey, did you watch He's All That? Yeah, it's not going to work out. It's not going <laughs> to it's not going to be the same thing. But, you know, good news is that at least, you know, yes, Halloween Kills is going to be out there. And there's, you know, I know I'm very excited for Antlers still coming mm-hmm. at the end of the month as far as like how ha- uh halloween horror type right. stuff coming out but netflix at least you know they've set it up where every single wednesday from mid-september to the end of the month they have a brand new horror or halloween-ish type movie mm. coming out and a couple of them are pretty good we're going to talk about uh that on the netflix uh on our podcast the netflix horror options uh we've been talking about the preview versions mm-hmm. now we're actually starting to kind of you know, review some of these things. We got two of them coming up this week, so please listen to the Nomcast uh, for that. But, you know, like I said, as the, the month progresses, we got a few more options of those, and then we start getting into, you know, Army of Thieves kind of wraps up the month there, and yeah. then it starts getting into what we care about, right, Mike? The awards films, the kind of more prestige films that they've waited to put out. And then also, of course, they're going to 
dive in as they always do into the holiday uh, magic. Uh, they got a big, big title with A Boy Called Christmas where it's got Kristen Wiig and Maggie Smith and all these mm. other people. Where it, it That one, they've been... They had a teaser for that last year. They care a lot about this movie. It's probably going to be a massive hit for them. Because that's, again, what Netflix is. They do everything for everybody. So they're going <laughs> to pump out the horror during uh, October. They're going to pump out the holiday films that, and, and shows and everything else, the kid content, everything for the next couple months until the end of the year. And then they're also going to push all the award season stuff that we care about coming up. Even in the international fair, you know, hand of God that we've been we've been saying. But you're right. Looking across the spectrum, they're heavy in terms of the amount. Are they going to compete with some of these other streamers? I was actually shocked when I put the list together that how little some of the other movie offerings are from the other ones. Like right. HBO Max, even for being day and date, has Dune, King Richard, and Matrix Resurrections, and one like general original and 8-Bit Christmas that they're doing. Four movies from now until the end of the year. Yeah. That's that, that's pretty tough. I think HBO is kind of feeding in succession and feeding in a lot of that their new stuff. And I think I think HBO Max kind of realized, all right, the pipeline for the movies is gonna, gonna go back to theatrical, whereas we finally got production caught up to us to where we'll have new stuff for whether it's Game of Thrones or et cetera. I mean, they got a lot of stuff coming directly to HBO Max. So that's the difference between, you know, reading somebody like Netflix and reading an HBO Max is like we're, we're looking at the reallocated titles versus what they already have. So you got to factor in both. But you're yeah. right. I mean, in terms of original movies, they're going to have HBO Max original movies that are going to do some of what we saw this year's theatrical slate do for them going forward because it's a lot of ip related stuff that mike and i already previewed already so right yeah i i wonder how you know that's a future conversation for you or you or and i comparing <laughs> and contrasting but you at netflix have these seasonal titles that are that are fun that that have been hits and and you got you got ip built up with those now and perhaps for the future most likely for the future but you also have huge swings at blockbuster movie going fair like with red notice so i guess that's yeah. my biggest question like red notice is playing for that you know pre thanks that november movie watching folk like right. like you and i like that is a must see as far as i'm concerned and before the must sees of the award slate so that is not counter programming and and that's i guess what I've wondered about Netflix, like, I mean, maybe September wound up being some counter-programming to the more blockbuster fare in cinemas. Do you think Netflix should counter-program, or do you think they just program to the algorithm and, and they don't necessarily take in cinematic offerings into that much account? So let's bring Patty Jenkins back into the conversation. <laughs> She's swooped right back into the into the conversation again. Here's the deal. She said something that made a lot of sense and is actually backed up by metrics, okay? She said that they these streaming movies don't have the lasting legacies that a lot of the other studios have in their coffers, right? These lasting images, these movies that stick with us, right? Mm -hmm. That's absolutely right. I mean, because how many times, you know, have we said besides maybe just maybe a couple of of Netflix movies have we talked about past a couple weeks 
how, how many, you know, the awards conversations, we talk about them a little bit more, but maybe mm-hmm. not in like the sense of some, how some of the, the, my fellow uh, film Twitter bros are like, yeah, this A24 movie, you know, we're still seeing gifts of the, of the lighthouse or something, or, you know, something along those lines or, 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 you know, even of these other films that have won over the past few years or these films that have had conversations that extended Netflix doesn't have that. For the most part, nobody's sitting around going, you know, marriage story, like not a lot. It's not really sitting around like maybe a a handful of things here and there. And that's the top, top, top end. I mean, the conversation with Chicago seven, if my if my podcast numbers or anything to say about it, died pretty quickly after award season. And even then, not too far out, once award season started to really kick into gear towards the end of the year because it did come out so early. it's tough right now. And and the thing is, their competition, Disney, has a legacy of all these things. Warner has a legacy of these things. You know, even for how much they've kind of suffered, you know, MGM had that a little bit. And now they're kind of mm-hmm. partnering up with Amazon. So the one thing that they need to figure out is how to be less content heavy and figure out what works and really put their full efforts, clear the decks, and try to be the thing that people want to watch and not be counter-programming. That's a fascinating answer because I've always kind of looked at Netflix as a beast feeder. Like, they've fed the beast, and we yeah. we have to watch. But it is very TV uh, in, in the sense that where it's kind of a part of our everyday, but how, you know, what sticks in our brains. You'll have the TV shows that, that hit on Netflix from the crown to uh, tiger King to, you know, squid game. Now those, and, and you know, the, the mini series, et cetera, Queens gambit, like those yeah. things will become th- what stick out in my brain about Netflix uh, before I get into the award slate. Like, every year the yeah. award slate does get to me. I thought Malcolm and Marie, even though it's a smaller movie, like, that was an event for us. And yeah. I, that's, that sticks with me to this day, and those gifts are around. So they've they've done it. They just haven't... I guess I, maybe it's, it's, it's lost in the sauce a little bit because the sauce is a giant pot of gravy that I'm about to consume on a Sunday myself. <laughs> uh, yeah. But it's, you know, and everything is in there. So it's kind of hard to, like, we keep mentioning this vocabulary word for the day parse through it in a way like you get the malcolm and marie gifts the marriage story gifts are there but yeah it's not necessarily the a24 cult hit status that they seem to generate like every time a24's name came up even with the screening i had last night with tragedy of Macbeth, there's an applause from a new york city movie going film festival crowd they just seem to have that now you know, I wondered if something like The Guilty would kind of, you know, hit that chord. I, I do think that horror series, uh, not, you know, uh, what was it, uh, 1984? What Fear was Street? That? Fear yeah. Street. Fear yeah. Street might have gotten some of that. Like, why wouldn't they do another Fear Street? They should. And- oh, they're definitely in talks to do so. And, and kind of what you're bringing up is something we we may keep mentioning to dum um you know which sounds like i don't know some a magician's thing in, instead of something that we should talk about cinema but um <laughs> the, it's a it was this big global fan event right and mm-hmm. they i was preaching we if you listen to my podcast you know one of the things i've been preaching is netflix had a 
needs to figure out how to weaponize their fandom because everybody, everybody else, especially the Disney's and Warner's, everybody else, they have legacy stuff that they keep getting money left and right with. Even to this day with HBO's crossover with Warner, I mean, you know, Game of Thrones, you saw people dressing up like all the characters and, and really getting to it. The fandom of it all. If you go to a, a Comic-Con or, or any of these events that, you know, I went to Connecticut Horror Fest, it, you're still seeing a lot of the more modern horror films. You're not seeing any conversation fully around something like either Fear Street or, or anything. If, there, if it is, it's Stranger Things. And, and they're not really weaponizing that anymore, A, because it's been so long between the, the previous season and, and the season to come. But at the same time, that's now four, epi- you know, about to be, what, four seasons in? And, and it's starting to, to end the tail run. But it's also not movies. So if you want conversations around these things, they really need to figure out how to be more present at these Comic-Cons, really figure out what's working and really go for the gut. And, but a global fan event, quote-unquote, like the dumb, it was three hours of me sitting on YouTube watching something pop up every few minutes, hosted by another person every, you know, it was every hour on the hour, and it's it had no rhythm. It didn't do, like, all movies up front and then all TV and then all, you know, international or anything like mm-hmm. that. Nope, not a thing. It was, I could be like, all right, I want to see... The Sandman, you know, because I'm a big Neil Gaiman fan, right? right. I want to see that come up. Oh, when is that? I don't know. Well, this is three hours long. You expect me to wait the whole time? Yes, I do. And then, <laughs> and, and then to kind of be insulted after the three hours is over, they're like, oh, yeah, we put every time we release something, we put it right online right afterwards. So you didn't need to sit through all this. Okay. Well, then why do we do this? So I don't know if it did what it was supposed to. Uh, I don't know if it drummed up a lot of business. They did it on a Saturday afternoon, too, you know, not Mm. when the Internet is on and buzzing. You know, so I don't know. I don't know how well it did, but they definitely need to figure out how to get the fan response heavy into that. Because Fear Street is one of those things that definitely did work. And, you know... Uh, Jordan D. Natale, who played Ruby Lane in those series, yeah, like yeah. she she was at Connecticut Horror Fest, returning um, guest on the Knobcast there, yeah, yeah, and and you know people came up, signed autographs, doing the whole thing. That's what you need, and and it, it's happening, but it's happening independent of of Netflix in a way. Well, I wonder if you're caught in the forest on some, you know, and looking at some of these trees <laughs> because again, I see. I see, like, their strategy through it a little bit, so I'll push back here. Here's where I'll push back. Sure. I wonder if it was a good move for them to kind of put the whole program out there first because people can, oh, I love Netflix, and that's the brand recognition because they've done that so well. They're not Disney with the vertically integrated everything from theme parks to, you know, the merchandise. Sure. to They don't have 100 years of doing that behind them. And like all these other studios, like Warner Brothers, et cetera, et cetera, Universal Studios, et cetera, they've all done it, and they've all had these, you know, multi- pronged ways to get our money and we give it to them willingly you know our whole lives and everybody's lives you know netflix just got great at doing what they do and they got the algorithm and they feed the beast and you're right i think this in terms of weaponizing the fandom is fairly new to them so they all right they could they could release all these panels individually like a comic-con and just go boom here's the wave here's the schedule 
and they chose not to do that necessarily, at least for the intro, but then they did it on the back end anyway, like you said. So they kind of did both. So I'm curious, I'm curious if at the end of the day, and maybe you'll interview somebody down the line, I'm, I'm, I would guess it was more successful than that for them than we think. Like they probably got buzz going where, where if you watch the three hour presentation and it's not that much to watch. I mean, it is because you're, you know, you're a parent <laughs> of two sure. kids, yeah. but maybe, maybe for like just the fanboys out there, like I don't see, like if I want to do a fanboy event and I take to take it all in, in three hours, I may come for this and stay for that and then learn about five, 10 other things, right? you know, and, it, you, and other fans could still have at it via the, uh, you know, the, the cut up YouTube cut ups elsewhere. Sure. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I could say to push back slightly on that is that mm-hmm. I was there watching the numbers go down hour by hour. Oh, so no. I don't know if people had the patience. I think at its peak, it had like 60,000 viewers watching it. Live. And then, okay. Yeah, live on YouTube. And then as it got into the second, third hour, it was down in the 20s or high teens. So, I mean, people are really just like either tuning out or they got what they wanted and then bounced. So, you know, looking at it as a whole, I don't know. They're like, well, we did this, you know, so it's better than nothing. But to do it on a weekend, have it be that long and then just literally just have it parsed out anyway. I don't know. I don't I I just want to I'd love to know from their perspective what they thought they were going to get out of it. And if they think that was successful, because I'm I'm a little caught in between. And I think that going forward, though, it might be nice to say, because actually last year they did this live. They did right. this live in like South America and you know, you know, the fans, what the fans want. Yeah. They want some of these exclusives like new trailers and clips and all these other things and mm-hmm. panels, etc. But what they really want is to see these people. They really want to feel like they're a part of it. They want to buy a t-shirt. They want to buy a Funko pop. They yeah. want to get that whole fan experience. They want to be immersed in their favorite stuff. And I'm hoping that Netflix does something like that going forward where maybe they have a Netflix con of some sort and maybe do it in a few cities around the globe or something. And maybe, you know, parse some of this information out that way, do a little bit at a time at a different event place and bring out the stars to do it really connect with the fans. I think, uh, what I realized over the last three weeks is that a film festival in, in a segue here is a yes. way to do a fan event it really is a fan event it's the hardcore cinephiles we all come together and we're very we're in a very celebratory mood about all these films yes. and i you're you're right there's something there's something special about the being there and being there early and seeing everything first and seeing all the exclusives and buying the t-shirt and and having a, a day out to be the super fan that Comic-Con has quote unquote weaponized for every studio in the world that Netflix is, is, is learning how to do and maybe So yeah. So this year they tried to, to make it the virtual event, but there's probably a ceiling on that anyway, because it's anathema. It goes against the whole spirit of the con kind of feeling. Right. Right. So it became this kind of, you know, three hour program that is not necessarily what YouTube has ever been designed for. 
No, and people complained about that when Comic-Con, you know, San Diego Comic-Con, like that whole experience went virtual right. last year. It, it wasn't the same feeling. And people no. were like bursting with wanting to get back in and doing it. Like New York Comic-Con's going on right now as we speak or, or just uh, happened, I think today's the last day maybe. And I know so many people are like so excited and it's... And it's Loving it. Yeah, and it's overflowing. And you're right. When I was at New York Film Festival for Power of the Dog... I felt giddy. I felt in my element. I felt inspired. I was like, I'm going to make a movie this year, Mike. I was like that kind of a thing. And I saw one movie. You saw like 20. So I can imagine your experience and, and, and the feelings that get drummed up. Because, you know, you sit there and you listen to Jane Campion speak. You, you mm. have Benedict Cumberbatch explaining stuff. You get, again, you just felt something about a movie. And mm-hmm. then you get this reinforced evaluation of it immediately following it's great. It's exactly what we want. It's what we went to film school for, right? Yeah, I think uh, it's unique. It's unique to be in a play, being within eleven hundred people at Alice Tully Hall. That number, I keep mentioning it because it's so different than even the packed house that we can see anywhere close to us. And the fact yeah. that we see it months early, and the fact that the directors are there and the stars are there, and they're doing the introduction and the Q and A, and it really is magical at times. So I'm thrilled that you had that experience. I I hope that uh, film festivals are just, I mean, having this financial boon. I really hope that they're doing extremely well because those are the organizations that I think I was most concerned for last year during the pandemic. Like how many of these, how many of these fold? How many of these yeah. independent run theaters who are connected to film festivals that you know that one time event on the year on the calendar how many of them go under because i mean we've seen some so they may have propped themselves up a bit virtually last year with new york film festival especially filmlink.org we saw nomadland there etc this year was back to normal but even i would say even more excited so yeah so yeah. do you have any takeaways from more takeaways from that night jane campion speaking benedict cumberbatch uh kirsten dunce was there she was sitting close to me for my last screening but that's the thing like you're when you're at the film festivals like i'm in the third row for penelope cruz uh right. the other night pedro almodovar for parallel mothers on the closing night what was the gala feel was everybody dressed to the nines for your screening yeah, so that was a big thing going in. I had no idea how to dress. I'm looking things up on the internet. I was losing my mind. My friend and I ended up going, you know, black on black, worried we look like waiters. You know, you never know <laughs> what's going on. It felt very New York to do the black on black. And then it's like, all right. But I, and I end up wearing a, my Netflix tie where it's got the red and the whatever. Like, I was like, all right, nice. I got to represent in some way. Oh, way overthought. Way overthought. Uh, but, you know, a great time. Some people were dressed to the nines. Of course, the people who were more red carpet folk, um, you know, and maybe some of the more uh, prestigious people who are going to speak or or the higher up critics. I, I said to you, it's so funny that we've entered this level of podcasting, fandom, film criticism, kind of like all mixed in to where I was like, yeah, 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 it's cool. Kirsten Dunst is over there. Did you see Ann Thompson come in over yeah, there? She's like three Thompson. rows from me. So it, it's become that kind of weird level of, of things. But that's what a film festival is too, right? Like if I knew yeah. somebody who, you know, does what I do or better or hanging around, you want to see those people too. Um, so Very cool. that, that was excellent. Yeah. And then just the atmosphere was great. Packed house. You know, the response I was, 
very much attuned to the standing ovation time. I was like sitting there, like trying to figure it out, and I was like, Good. "Yeah, it's it's way too overwhelming." You guys were right. It's it's hard. There's no way people are this accurate unless it's their only job, and you have the stopwatch coach Mike over here. That's right, uh, doing his thing. But yeah, I I was very taken with the movie. They echoed a lot of things that I picked up, which was good. I I feel like I I responded to the film in the way it was intended. Um, a lot of conversations about gaslighting, um, which mm-hmm. I think are going to be a conversation coming through on this one. The way she sets tension, uh, Campion. <laughs> I also love her. She's she's. I've never really hear, heard her speak a lot. Aussie. She, she, yeah, an Aussie who's got kind of a freak bent. I like her. <laughs> I like her. I, I dig it. I, I really I, I enjoyed it. It was like charming but understated and and really she's she's all out there. She is one hundred percent her person. She is not <laughs> faked out. And and as I said to you on my train ride back, uh, you know, she has a type in terms of a movie. I watched the piano the night before I went to the screen to kind of reinvest myself in that. Mm-hmm. She she has a way of she likes to present tension without being obvious in her intentions and being you know she loves a good twist she loves a lot of these things that are hallmarks this film is hallmarks of what she likes to do and it was very effective i I reviewed the book power of the dog a few weeks ago on the pod and i was excited to see it get uh adapted but i also was terrified like how is she going to do it so that that just takes that just takes all this chutzpah going in. So this right. story is, I mean, this is literative, uh, literary is the, is the actual word. Uh, <laughs> it's not, I mean, you would think it would be vegetables, cinematic vegetables. It is yeah. not. Like the goods delivered are joyous in some cases. Like I, n- knowing the story, knowing the book, I watched a few of the scenes just swooning and I watched a couple of the scenes bracing for impact. It really got a lot of reaction out of me, the power of the dog. Whereas where, whereas I think that's going to be the strength at the end of the day in both of these Netflix films at the New York film festival, the lost daughter and the power of the dog, they get these visceral reactions from the audience. They're not always pleasant. And which is why Jane Campion is such a badass. which is why Maggie Gyllenhaal is, is going to have such uh, an uproarious debut in terms of her directorial career and why she's factored into these conversations so i like you don't get cinematography like this elsewhere like i feel like i saw at least three cinematography contenders with the tragedy of macbeth dune and here the power of the dog from the first shot i mean i don't feel like any shot was wasted by ari wegner uh the director of photography for the power of the dog like he's done some cool ass movies too just the inspired pick of jane campion this guy's done zola true history of the kelly gang and lady macbeth for for her to pick Wegner here for this Montana mountains showcase, this epic landscape backdrop was just incredible. And I, I, can't, I was just mesmerized by the visuals uh, on one hand for the power of the dog. Yeah. And, and literally they said that they spent over a year pre-planning those shots and, and scouting locations. And I believe it, yeah. in that area that you can tell, you can tell that this is a, a labor of love, uh, a really intricate story that they wanted to bring to life. They mentioned the book several times of that, how much they wanted to do it justice. And, 
and and even Cumberbatch was like, yeah, you definitely need to read this book to, and and appreciate it. So they they went heavy on that and, and saying that the source material was a huge inspiration. I think you, as a person who at least had the audiobook, I believe version of it, <laughs> it definitely matches up to a lot of things that maybe you can put in your mind. And and I think they did a great job with that. So, you know, uh, the, the one thing that you mentioned, though, conversation. That's what I look for in a movie now. Yeah, where yeah. I want, We had great conversations, myself and my friend uh, Chris Frodell, who's a frequent guest on my show, um, sure. had a long talk. We walked, like, instead of taking the subway, we walked back to Grand Central. Oh, good, because yeah. we just we just wanted to debate merits of this movie and i think that's exactly <laughs> what we want we wanted the after movie diner experience of just sitting around and dissecting and i think this movie can do that for a lot of people going forward i'm thrilled to hear it. i wish you recorded it that could have been the you know <laughs> least you could have done for all, all of us but no that's that is so cool that's why a movie like the power of the dog which is probably gonna i mean talk about the the, the divisive label it's probably going to hit people that way. Oh yeah. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean the quality is lower. Like these other movies no. that are kind of softball thrown in the air that people can agree on. Like that's the movie that that a hype train, especially a film festival overhype train right. kind of jumps on, but I wonder like this is this has sticking power the power of the dog. And Radiohead's Johnny Greenwood and that's original score. I mean, he's responsible for There Will Be Blood and Phantom Thread, two scores that have haunted me for years. Never mind the fact that with The Power of the Dog, one of the first times I wasn't antsy to get up. And now you usually got the film festival politeness, the decorum as you sit and you wait for the credits to be over. And, and almost always I'm waiting for the Q&A to start. But I'm in right. the encore screening. I knew I didn't have a Q&A. I'm eager to get back to PJ Clark's, which became my <laughs> my stomp. I went the last three meals to PJ Clark's, my friend. Oh, my God. I, <laughs> I, I have to post pictures of the lobster roll and the burger and the, the mac and cheese, oh, dear God, big, thick cuts of bacon, square <laughs> cuts of bacon and peas that surprisingly the work in there. And then I had to clam chowder, too. So, I mean, I had three meals in a row at PJ Clark's. I, I always thought it was just a bar. I never went, ever. Yeah. When I was in school there. And, and yeah, it's, more, it's probably too expensive for a student, but I would have had you know, un aunts and uncles and parents who are visiting take me there for Christ's sake while, while I was at Fordham. But I, yeah. I absolutely love PJ Clark's three, t three meals in a row. It was like, at that one point I was just like, why mess around? It's right across <laughs> the street. I have an hour in between screenings, especially on encore day. I had lunch and dinner there. So that was, I was just, I was so satisfied going into So the, these movies <laughs> actually played probably better because of that. Anyway, I didn't want to leave to rush to PJ Clark's because I wanted to stay there and listen to Johnny Greenwood's score. I mean, the music yeah. of The Power of the Dog is another. It's just like these, these have slam dunk Oscar nominations for a movie it does. like this. It does. It really does. I mean, you can tell the conversation going into all these things is that this is kind of, you know, the number one pick. For, for Netflix going forward, they're kind of big hopes. You know, we'll see what Don't Look Up is going to do. I mean, the cast alone is going to grab attention, but... We'll see uh, mm -hmm. what happens, but you could definitely tell their attention has shifted to push this as far as we can and try to see if it can overtake some of these. You know, we got a lot of big-time directors this year. I, I know 
uh, I, I listened to you guys talk about the licorice pizza uh, trailer <laughs> stuff, um, which uh, I still need to see video footage of you of you having a licorice pizza and, and doing that whole thing. You know, you mentioned that many times, so I'm totally into that. Um, plus, I would totally not to go to sidebar, but I need you to do a video series on the kind of the decorum of a film festival and where to oh, yeah. go and all these things. I need you to be the, you know, Anthony Bourdain of film festivals and just really tell me where to go, what to wear, do the whole thing, do well, the, the whole ensemble. I'll hold this book up for you. We're not video, but I'm holding up Chris Gore's ultimate film festival survivor guide by the way, we've See? had Chris on the show. So like that, that, that's where you, you know, you go to first, but yeah, sure. sure I'll be the, uh, <laughs> I, I would love I would love to just uh, go to all the film festivals now. I mean, I was I was yeah. thrilled to do eight nights at New York here, uh, but yeah, that that I, I feel like I got the New York Film Festival down this year. The eight nights yeah. that it really was a, a fun experience, and not, and for the overall for the meals for the bouncing around the city, just walking around Lincoln Center, the Opera House yeah. there, my old uh, stomping grounds with Fordham, and they have that garden right out front, the coffee shops, New York cheesecake, and then you get Q and A's with like Bill Murray. I mean, the previous episode, uh, I, I did a Brothers Day out with uh, mm. my brothers and a few of their friends for the French Dispatch, and we had a blast. So, like that kind of thing, like, you walking home with your buddy, yeah, talking about the movie, like that's that's unique. You don't get that. Yeah many other places so the power of the dog had that had that going for it and the lost daughter the same deal now the lost daughter is not a movie that i would typically see and like if i watched that at home i probably would just been in a bad mood afterwards but i'm in a glorious (laughs) mood because i'm in new york and i go back to pj clark's but the thing with the lost daughter is it's that level of provocative like that will and now I'm thinking back to 100 things about The Lost Daughter, Maggie Gyllenhaal's debut here. I'm like, holy shit, this movie has so much going for where it's attacking me and I'm forced to confront it. Right. And I did not expect that from, number one, a directorial debut necessarily, uh, especially of an, like an, a, a, an accomplished actress like Maggie Gyllenhaal. I didn't expect to, to have to contend with this film as much. But Olivia Coleman, like, this is another just obvious Oscar nomination as far as I'm concerned. Will she win? Will she won't? We got a whole season to talk about that. I think Ed Harris, I think uh, I think Dakota Johnson were also very good. Paul Mescal, also very good. So this is like one of those movies that it's a must-see for Netflix. Now, how much legs does it have? We have been talking about this big three for a while now. And I will say, yeah, I mean, this is just this high-quality film, another adaptation of a of a novel that I think just there's so much to consume. There's so much meat on the bone there for folks. But The Lost Daughter is now this must-watch for everybody. I think both in theaters, again, will spur upon the conversation. I'm dying to know what you think of The Lost Daughter based on your parenting. Like, because this is a movie <laughs> about exasperated parents, and, right. and the agony of parenting, you know, needy kids at times. And, I, you know, I what the hell do I know about that? But I know I had reactions that forced me to react to it because it's a confrontational film. So your sense right now, based on the film festivals, is that, you know, you would put The Lost Daughter in the Netflix big three, right? You would say that they're kind of arming up for this film to be an Oscar contender. 
Yeah, I would. And I mean, I was talking to other fellow critic podcaster people after the movie for Power of the Dog, just kind of like talking through it. And then, you know, kind of, you know, conversations go to other Netflix movies, things that people have seen that maybe I haven't yet. Mm-hmm. And the the definitely it is very strong buzz for Olivia Coleman. I think that is real. And some people are higher on the, you know, Dakota Johnson or or uh, help me. You talking Ed Jesse Harris? Buckley? Uh, oh yes, you know. Jesse Buckley's in it. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, her as well. Like I know Scott Feinberg was like saying any of those three could be in the mix, but with Coleman being the more strong, suitable candidate going forward, not everybody believed that when I kind of mentioned that to others. No, but, she's yeah. obviously right there. I mean, she's doing a hundred different things with her face in every scene. I mean, that she yeah. it's so obvious that she should be a best actress nominee. Uh, that, like that's the it's the easiest decision of the season in my opinion right well the the interesting thing for me too is that I, I've been having a lot of conversations with people tis the season right for horror movies and what we like about them during this time of year the interesting part is I feel like a lot of the conversations I had about uh the power of the dog and and with some of these awards films I like movies that make me upset in some fashion I yeah. like the extended conversation <laughs> I like Yes, we can go over every grainy detail of the cinematography and the aspects of why it was effective. But I think at the end of the day, it needs to work and it needs to have presenting tensions and, and all these things that have conversations that gnaw at you going forward. And we, uh, I was talking with a person about Hereditary because tis the season. And that was kind of the conversation. It was like, it upset me, so it stayed with me. And mm. I think that was the exorcist effect. There's a lot of these things that it's like, ah! <laughs> you know, if it gets right <laughs> in my soul, it's going to go forward. And I'm hoping that, you know, that is the effect of the power of the dog. Um, and, you know, now that you're mentioning it where it kind of gnawed at you for this one, I, I'm very interested to see it probably least because I'm a parent, because I don't want to have any kind of self-reflections of am I a bad parent any more than I already do on a day-to-day basis, Mike. I will guarantee you're not a parent like the parents at the New York Film Festival on screen, (laughs) whether that's Joaquin Phoenix or whether that's, you know, uh, Dakota Johnson. I would guarantee you're not uh, that type of parent. Uh, However, I think it does raise a million questions and it forces us to talk about them, which is perhaps, you know, the goal of this entire podcast is us trying to figure out where Netflix lays in that conversation. And just the general endeavor of our podcast and, and, you know, overall is that we feed on that. We need that. And here you got two Netflix movies that will spark that conversation for sure. So that that is a void being filled with this award slate and maybe that's going to be the case with a don't look up or maybe that'll be tick tick boom we don't yeah. know what this third we hoped it would have been the starling <laughs> but i i just feel like she oh, wasn't so melissa mccarthy wasn't herself in that movie like if she played or she needs to play an ornery character she need like that's her that's her lane and she's so good at it why you know why cast her if you're not going to let her be that way and make us laugh and make us cry. And she did it. You know, can you ever forgive me? She was able to walk the tightrope and Marielle Heller utilized her in that regard. But unfortunately, Mr. Melfi, he struggled with that. Now, the movie had CGI birds, the elite level <laughs> CGI birds, I would yeah. say, I listened to your review. A whole chase in the beginning. My God. Beyond that, though, that movie did not work. So No, give me more St. Vincent than this movie. Exactly. 
and get yeah you have because you have the charismatic vintage bill murray t-shirt performance from bill murray i would yes, say exactly <laughs> right <laughs> so that's the thing like I, I i think movies for netflix have to be more precise and these films are and maybe the film festival acquisitions can be for them and they have to go off the beaten path more and just discover the zeitgeisty stuff more than creating things for the algorithm. I don't know. It's a, it's a that's a whole nother argument on how you get what they are, are are seeking with these movies that will just be brain worms. What's the term for that? <laughs> Stick with us like the lighthouse, like you were mentioning before. Yeah, yeah, it's the cinematic version of an earworm for sure. Earworm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it is totally that. Um, and you're right. I I think. They need stuff that creates legacy and conversation and things like that. You know, uh, some of these movies that have gone on so far, you know, varying degrees of success. But I hope that we get that. You're right. I, we 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 did, to our credit, say that Tick, Tick, Boom was our third. I wonder whether Lost Daughter has now hopped into that, uh, right. you know, and, and taken over that. Because Probably. I got to say, I'm kind of iffy on the new trailer. It looks good enough but it's not it's not bringing me there just yet so we'll see uh that one's going to festivals next month so and then immediately out so we'll we'll have some perspective real soon yeah afi early uh november and then like you said uh don't look up kind of the bit one of the bigger mysteries of award season i would say for Absolutely. us like because that's the, like the power of the dog and the lost daughter to me feel like acting show, like you could win lead actress and best actor from those yes. films or either supporting based on some of these performances, Kirsten Dunst, etc. Are you going to win best picture with either of them? Hell no, no way, no chance. <laughs> the, the, it's not happening in my opinion. Now, maybe the Academy shocks me with the power of the dog. I, I doubt it. I think these movies are, they feel like nominees. They don't feel like best picture winners. I would yeah. say. So that's the question or where don't look up. Could it be that void? No, I don't, but I don't think that's a loss for Netflix. I think the fact that they're still putting out great awards content, great awards movies, is a major plus. Yeah, the fact that they're competing at all right. when they basically dumped out the toy box during the pandemic to make sure people were staying on the platform and then still have enough in the tank to keep the, yeah. the train on the tracks, that's great. But Speaking of stuff that should win Best Picture, you saw Dune, so I'm uh, anxiously <laughs> awaiting what you have to say about that and whether you think maybe that's more in the picture than what Netflix has going on. So the Dune movie-going experience was uh, Friday afternoon, 3 o'clock, and it was in Walter Reed. Now, I have some of my greatest movie-going experience, uh, experiences ever from Walter Reed, but that's like a hundred person theater, right? Maybe 150. I don't know what it, the capacity, it's not Alice Tully Hall, which is 1100. So I wish I right. went, I was able to go on Thursday night for the New York film festival premiere for the, you know, the big gala event version of Dune. I was not D Denis Villeneuve was still there. He, he introduced the movie, which was awesome. He was very pro theater, wasn't the same. And I'm kind of upset at myself for not just going the extra night, going a ninth night. Cause I could have, uh, so that was a problem for me. The The whole hype train on Dune was also a problem. I'm not going to lie. Because sure. people overhyped Dune so damn much. Like, Mike Mike was joking around that, it, you know, Dune should cure cancer based off the <laughs> glowing Venice reviews. And I get, uh, at the end of the day, I understand why. Because I think this movie, as a production value showcase, as, you know, Jazz Tanke said, it may sweep 
some of these artisan categories and these crafts, and I could totally see that. Sure. It also has cinematography that I've never seen before. I've never seen military sci-fi this chic, to put right. it in a Jared Leto term, you know, from House of Gucci <laughs> trailer that I've w- watched recently. Mm. I've never seen it done this this clean, smooth, and chic uh, on on the big screen, and that is the opposite, the polar opposite of what David Lynch had to do, tried to do in the mid '80s. So this Dune. And you saw, you've all seen it in the trailers. To actually experience that for two and a half hours, two hours and thirty-five minutes, is a joy. And I, I think cinema goers who are kind of gravitating towards, you know, the, uh, the the those goods delivered, cinematography, visual effects, costumes, production design, sound. To me, those are one, two, three, four, five nominations that are probably in the bag for Dune. I would be sure. shocked otherwise. The story has always been the problem for me with Dune. And I, one of the perks of being on the train for three hours a day minimum <laughs> for these eight viewings is that I listen to the entire Dune audiobook. Right. Not, not something that really works on me. Now, I love science fiction and fantasy because I love kind of military science fiction at times, like Old Man's War. I don't know if you got into any of that stuff back in the day uh, or even now. I think... When that's done well, that to me is just a rousing experience, and Game of Thrones is able to accomplish that, and, and at least on the fantasy side of things, and, and book form, and all yeah. of the, you know, Joe Abercrombie, he's my new guy with this, uh, in, in the the audiobook world. Dune did not strike me that way as a book, but then right. we get this movie where Denis Villeneuve has this. Oh my God! The 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 looming battle is incredibly uh, captured, and then when the battle hits. I, I just I'm a huge fan of what he was able to accomplish in that regard. So the prepare for battle goods. If you're one of those you know steak eater moviegoers like I want to be, sometimes I am, sometimes I'm both. Right. I'm still a guy. I st- the testosterone in Dune is there. So I was very, I was very pleased with that. With that, I'm still a bit underwhelmed by this story. However, because number one, this is a part one. This is a two parter. This is I know. St- that's the thing right I think the they underserved big time with with this movie is that that wasn't communicated as well as it was and I and we haven't really seen like hey yeah Dune Two is solid it's in the bag it's happening right. it's going like so I think if that conversation was more out there I think they'd have less jarring reactions in, in terms of some of the some of the things that I've seen because even film critics who aren't like as maybe familiar with the the Herbert books you know. They're like, what just happened to me? <laughs> yeah, you're not expecting to just be cut in half. Like, this is half of a five-hour movie. Right. Point blank. And I kind of knew that going in to a, de- to a degree, but I still I thought it would end with more of a, a finale. So that is, it, it really is a cliffhanger. You're halfway through the story. That That's a bit jarring. And maybe I didn't read enough of the reviews or there you go, but... I'm guessing this is going to be something they continue on HBO Max no matter what, whether it's a miniseries, TNT style, or whether they make part two. But you're right. Denis Villeneuve, he's probably got a lot of conflict in his brain right now because he wanted theatrical on this, but he didn't push back enough because he's got this leverage of, I need to make part two. This is required before he could... uh, Yeah, he he needs that financing. So yeah, Dune is something that... uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you're going to watch, let's be honest. So 
even if you're not maybe the science fiction fan. So, like, I, I wish I could come out as glowing. I still give it a B plus, or at least my first reaction to it. Mike and I will probably have to do a film study, so I appreciate that. Uh, how how could, you know excited are you? Like, are you almost relieved that this was my review? Did you expect this review from me? Uh, are you bummed? <laughs> from earworms to sandworms, right, Mike? That's what we need to uh, name this title, right? So I, I am all over the place by it. You know, I think it's uh, some of the, the stuff about spice and, and car- that's cartoonish yeah. in ways. Yeah. And I, I definitely, I'm one of those people, shoot me, film Twitter or whatever, I love certain Denis Villeneuve films, and some of them completely leave me in what you're kind of describing, where he picks these visually compelling films that he has complete vision over, but the story ends up being something to where I'm like, a little lackluster, a little little more trying, a little something that's not going to stay with me, because the best sci-fi to me it not only entertains, but it also has like a philosophy behind it, and it has something that you could chew on. That has legs going forward, and and that's something where I think has been a little lost with these. My wife is a big fan of the books. We have all the books in my house. All the Dune books are in my house. So it is something that has been talked about. It's something that I was hoping to kind of have, like, the Dunkirk effect in, in terms of, like, I want this experience, not just watching it theatrically. I want to be IMAX. I want to be pelted mm. by the by the music and the majesty and everything else and i want to be in there but i have seen from some of my favorite film critics not just obviously your own right now where they kind of feel either insulted underwhelmed or or like i think david Ehrlich, you know for indiewire <laughs> gave it like one star he oh, hated no. the thing so you know th- there are definitely different reads on this one so i think my expectations have been batted down to being more centered at this point, and I'm hoping for the best, but I had my, those own apprehensions of Denis Villeneuve going in. Is this going to be Blade Runner 2049 where I'm like spectacular, gorgeous film that left mm. me feeling kind of just blah sort of at the end of the day? Or is this going to be like Arrival or some of the things that I think are like excellent in, in, in terms of his filmography? So, you know. It goes back and forth, and, and yeah. I'm hoping for the best. So I guess my last question has to be, you know, is this a movie night for the Nomcast household, you know, that you can't help, you can't avoid, or is this something that the Momcast and the Nomcast <laughs> will watch together via, you know, streaming? You know, I, I, I mean, you, you're honest, the fact that you, you have other streaming services, et cetera. And I sure, think, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, HBO Max is a really cool one in terms of its library and the, and, the, and the movies on it. Like, I experienced holy shit moments watching Dune on the big screen, and you're inclined right. to see it there as well. Are you going to make it the priority to have the big movie night? Yeah, see, I'm caught in between where I want it, my first experience to be in the theater, but as you said, the mom cast is currently not going into theaters, so okay. it might be an HBO Max thing, you know, with each of us having uh, a nom cat on our laps, you know, the whole thing, <laughs> going back and forth, keeping the branding, because the branding is solid. Uh, so, you know, I think that might have to be the first view, because she might kill me if I see it by myself before all that, okay. but, you know, we'll we'll go with that but yeah it's gonna be tough to be on like hey isn't this dope on my 
39-inch TV or whatever it is. So, you know, it, with no sound system to speak of, etc. So hopefully it still captures you at home, but I have my dad. So I definitely still want to go and get the IMAX experience and do the whole thing the way it's intended. I, I'm heartened to hear you say that as a as a nomcaster in general, but I do uh, <laughs> I do have two movies, and I appreciate you hanging with me getting through these Parallel Mothers and the Tragedy of Macbeth, where I want to give some first impressions of as well. Because hey, here's the thing: like I had a blast seeing that with Pedro in his purple suit with Penelope Cruz. I'm in <laughs> row five, right? So I'm right up next to the Alice Tully Hall screen. There's a, uh, a 1,100 people in there. Penelope Cruz introduces the movie with Valmodivar. It, it was one of those black tie affairs, like you're saying, with the uh, power of the dog, closing night. I, I, feel, I feel like I dressed up as much as I could <laughs> sure. based on my, you know, I just came from Dune at Walter Reed, and here I am. You know, I got to go right in line because Dune went up right up to the edge of it, right in line for Parallel Mothers. And nobody's better at complicating a plot than Pedro Almodovar. And I love <laughs> that about him. And you're going to get goods delivered. If you want that soap opera melodrama, you get it here. There's a double-edged part of that sword, though. Like, what? Like how things can happen in this universe, especially <laughs> from a parental expect, uh, uh, perspective like you. Like, you watch Parallel Mothers and don't send me a string of texts afterwards. Like, <laughs> oh, so that's just going to happen and there's no paperwork. Or that's just going to... Like oh, yeah. The, the yada yadaing of this movie drove me nuts. And I know Mike One, as a lawyer, for Christ's sake, would go insane watching Parallel Mothers. And then, like, all right, it's wonderful for a movie plot, but I need to see, I need to see the hour of paperwork just to start that <laughs> yeah. year of paperwork. Anyway, so Parallel Mothers really drove me nuts in that regard, where I probably like a more on a B minus, but wavelength with it which is upsetting to me because i thought you know penelope cruz is terrific like the cast is terrific uh my god the 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 new actress uh the find that she is i'm looking up her name right now sorry again i'm trying to not do too much editing here so let me just melena melena smith sorry folks melena smith oh my god i remembered her name so I'm going to leave that in because <laughs> I'm afraid of the editing button. I'm proud of you, buddy. Proud of you. <laughs> yes, she was awesome. She was there. She was dressed to the nines with the, oh my, a dress that would just make Austin Powers' head explode. Uh, <laughs> and then they talk about the movie afterwards, and you're just in love. I mean, I love his career thus far. I watched a bunch of his movies. I rewatched a bunch of them. Broken Embraces. You know, something I tweeted about. You know, months ago, that Parallel Mothers was a poster on the wall, was a script in the film for the screenwriter protagonist, the the Almodovar CU, the cinematic universe of his. Right. So I recommend all that. Like, do have that experience on HBO Max with Parallel Mothers going into it. Uh, I talk to her, I believe. Anyway, they're all available on streaming services. Maybe Netflix has got to get more in the Almodovar verse. Oh. There you go. There's hey. a name for a podcast, The Almodovars. <laughs> I love it, man. I, I even, uh, while I was at Alice Tully watching Power of the Dog, they, they of course, had merch out there for that. And not only did I get my New York Film Festival hoodie, uh, but I did also go pin heavy, and I got the Almodovar in the purple suit as, like, a little pin. So oh, good. I'm in. I'm in. Uh, but I, I desperately <laughs> want to do my rewatch and everything, so I'm... I, 
I'm not shocked by anything you said. I love the fact that he reuses a lot of the same cast. It kind of feels like a conversation continuing and everything else with him. And, well, one and, of his characters got a, a applause, like a sitcom. He, she came oh. onto the screen, <laughs> and then boom, we're all applauding. It was like, oh, I love her. She's in all of the movies. Yeah. No, yeah. it's perfect. But, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to that. I, I'm I'm, I'm anxiously awaiting it, and I definitely want to do that rewatch that you, you just said because I've it's, done a lot of that with, like, Campion yeah. lately and everybody else. So I'm looking forward to that. When do, when is the official release date on that? Later oh, in God. December? I don't I know. Hold on. I got the IMDb page still up. But, yeah, I mean, the highs are high with Parallel Mothers, and the, the performance is incredible, and I can't find it here. I do believe it's December I, I don't know. <laughs> oh, December 24th, limited. All right, so it's coming out right at the end. So they're go. trying to position it, but it did not get picked, Parallel Mothers, as Spain's uh, entry, which I thought it was going to overcome the kind of political issues that I knew it was going to have because I read, I read about it going in. It did not overcome. Like, they went with Hubby's film, uh, Javier Bardem's film, Instead mm. of Penelope Cruz, you know, The Good Boss, which is a comedy, probably lighthearted, that they could sell. But it's it's kind of shameful that they ignored. Or maybe maybe Pedro's like, all right, if they I did something wrong, if I make a political film that the government, you know, criticizing the <laughs> government. They sanction it, yeah. Right. That, maybe he's like thinking about it that way. But still, I think Penelope Cruz probably has legs as a, as a lead actress. He's another one of those kind of obvious decisions. So as long as people put in the screener she's probably in now here's a major question hanging over this award season because apple tv plus has made the play for the bard like i this is <laughs> i'm shocked that this is an apple original film the tragedy of macbeth i have no idea if it's going to play on apple tv plus it is shakespeare it's hardcore shakespeare right. and i know they kind of scaled it back the mr cohen scaled it back but this is still like something wicked this way comes and my great aunt's, you know, five packs a day voice narrating <laughs> the first act, which was brilliant, by the way, to have the, the three crones voiced by this incredible performer who's also a contortionist. And again, the first scene, hmm. act one of the tragedy of Macbeth, act three really delivers. The problem is we get a little lost in act two and his his ability to adapt the middle of Macbeth kind of suffered for that. Like I got a little okay. exhausted and exasperated with the middle Shakespearean Shakespeare Shakespeareanness of the tragedy <laughs> of Macbeth. And it's unfortunate. Maybe that again, this is a first reaction. This is not a review, but maybe that's the fact that I just had that Mac and cheese <laughs> and the burger and that my second meal in a row at PJ Clark's. Maybe it's the end of a long movie going day. If I just saw the tragedy of Macbeth with an opening night audience, it might have been a different scenario. I saw it as my last, my seventeenth film of this film festival, the very last screening I had last night at the New York Film Festival. So maybe this is something I can watch and enjoy and dive into more on Apple TV Plus. Go figure. I just criticized it. Another obvious cinematography nom: the tragedy of Macbeth. Maybe sound, but here's the thing: like. They go for broke on the performances. Francis McDormand and Denzel Washington. And sometimes that works, dude, and sometimes it doesn't. Like I'm only I'm a cringing sometimes. What is the level of Cohenness that I should expect? Because, you know, some of the later stage Cohen brothers you 
you get maybe something more prestigious like how they adapted uh, No Country, but it still has some of the, the hallmarks of that quirky Cohen version of it. Is there any influence? I know the, the brothers separated on this one, so you're only getting one of the two, but are, are we still seeing anything of the hallmarks of a, of a Cohen brothers film? Well, Stephen Root does a Stephen Rooty thing. Uh, he gets a scene. Uh, yeah. We get we get unique production design, I would say, from Macbeth. But in terms of like, are you gonna? Does it feel at all like a Coen Brothers film? No, it's the least Coen Brothers film ever mm. because probably it was just Coen Brother, and right. this is him doing Shakespeare. This is Mr. Coen doing. I forget if it's Joel or Ethan. Forgive me. I think it's Joel. I believe it's Joel. Yeah, this is him doing Shakespeare and With doing it wife. well. Yeah. With Francis McDormand as Lady Macbeth and Denzel Washington as, you know, one of the scarier tyrants in a while. Now, again, I think the Act Two problem is the break from Macbeth that you're rooting for wholeheartedly, somehow because it's Denzel Washington, Francis McDormand, and then obviously we know that character assassinates himself in the mm-hmm. middle of the movie, and I don't think he over I don't think he overcomes it, and that's a that's a problem. Uh, of the adaptation, unfortunately, uh, right. this specific adaptation, because you're with it the whole time when you're reading the play in school and you're with it, even with the Fassbender, you know, the just over gratuitous whispering movie that he did. <laughs> yes. You're with the Macbeth story. We know Macbeth works as a story. So why didn't it work for me as a moviegoer last night? That's my problem. And I, I was I was a little shocked that it, that it jarred me so much. And maybe it's because of the character acting involved. I would say Corey Hawkins is very good and you're 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 rooting for that character as well, Macduff. You know, that's an issue. I think it's almost a, an issue to pit against Mr. Washington. It, I, I here's the, where it delivers. Mc, Tragedy of Macbeth delivers in its finale and it delivers in its setup like I said and it gets lost in act 2, unfortunately. Isn't it an odd year where we're having a Cohen brother make Shakespeare and Kenneth Branagh making a more you know <laughs> personal black and white <laughs> right of a different sort where it's like you know more in the indie spirit of a Cohen brothers movie? I can't wait for that one too. So, that, but that one's going to be that's one that eluded me with the festivals. Everybody saw Spencer, I didn't. Everybody saw Belfast, I didn't. Unfortunately, I couldn't catch it uh, either, and I'm not going to until it's early November date. But we got some Netflix movies that are going to elude us till the time when we'll have to get back together and review one of these things in December in, sure. t- in terms of a full film study. And I'll even, you know, force Mike to watch a Shakespearean film. Uh, to to, to kind of sink our teeth into the tragedy of Macbeth again and, you know, maybe a parallel mother. So we got film studies to come, both Netflix-related and otherwise, and I really appreciate you. Why did we think this was only going to go an hour? Of course it was going to. We said it. (laughs) We We had an hour and a half conversation after Bond, let alone doing a podcast. (laughs) Exactly. So I I hope we gave everybody a ton to, to sink their teeth into. Again, forgive the editing issues if I had any. I don't know. I'm going to try and let this play and kind of be, you know, more uh, improvisational than ever in terms of a, a conversation. But we really did. We, we had only a couple pages of a Google document and just went off on this. So I, I really appreciate uh, the, the movie going conversation. I'm glad <laughs> that these film festivals have, have sparked that in us all uh, yeah. in, in you and me. So 
Uh, I, I'm thrilled that you got a couple conversation pieces headed to Netflix. So, yeah, I mean, remind the folks where they can find you and certainly uh, what you got coming up on the programming here. Yeah, like like we've talked about uh, ad nauseum, you know, we're going to get through the, the Halloween stuff uh, coming up and then right into Oscar season going forward. Um, follow along all of it at NomCastPod on Twitter and Instagram at nomcastpod.com if you're on the webs and then of course you know the nomcast the netflix original movie podcast is on all the major podcast platforms so you know visit us on apple Podcasts, spotify stitcher wherever you like us uh you know head out there and, and check us out we even have a few you know youtube videos if you're if i know the hardcore oscar uh person wants to know what are joel courtney's thoughts on kissing booth three if you want to do that you can check those out online i love too. your interviews though i love you're <laughs> doing a great job with the interviews that's a skill i don't know if we possess here at mike mike and oscar we've done a few but you you really uh you really do a great job i love that joel courtney episode you guys did and you did it for youtube too yeah exactly so you know and and that is also a, a podcast too so if you don't want to do the whole youtube thing you can check it out there but yeah we cover everything man we will cover everything from a, a y18 romance to uh the hand of god coming up <laughs> you know like we're, we're gonna cover it all so you know uh, no stone unturned in the Netflix universe, unless you're a miniseries or a TV show. Just movies on this angle, baby, is the Nomcast. Well, Netflix should love you because you've been mining all their stuff for conversation, trying to start those grassroots campaigns and succeeding in many, many cases, especially for the award slates that, I mean, we go deep. I mean, we were on my octopus teacher before anybody. And that's like, I mean, I'm sure that's their goal for everything. Now, if they could get a yeah. hundred more of my octopus teachers and squid games, <laughs> I might, sensing a theme all right but I think look, so <laughs> mike is texting me furiously right now mike won this is we're almost to noon on a sunday and bond made 56 million so you want to do another Ooh. half hour on bond? But 56 so that's under so i guess you know our you know we we were kind of going into this are we going to talk about it as a box office recovery or not i think we picked the right side on that again thanks to mike one's projections and thank to thanks to your know-how you kind of figured all right wait we can't because I can get overhyped, and right. you scaled me back. No, it's not necessarily a box office recovery yet. So your your instincts proved correct, my friend. So how do you want to do this? Because I do have one lingering thought that we didn't mention. In terms well, mention of the it box. now. Yeah, no. I mean, it's a, it's right. an outro. I'm not the typical host. Let's have another five minutes if we need to. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. So the one big thing that a lot of people talked about going into the film and then got buried as people were actually watching it, reviewing it, and then kind of seeing the box office uh, unfold. This is a movie that got delayed a very long time. Very and long. this is a movie that they had to remarket and remarket and remarket over and over. So I think I'm more interested to know if this has legs into a second week because people are like, oh, it finally came back out again or whether mm -hmm. they did the job and, and this is what we got. So, Ooh. you know, it's it's close to Spectre numbers, which should be semi-encouraging 65 percent maybe yeah well that mike yeah. actually did he he dialed it up where he's like all right i think it's going to do like 73 percent so i don't know what 56 is now in terms of a percentage but that my guess is around 65 percent 
what Spectre did, whatever that was. So yeah, it's not it's not as high as we thought. But again, you know, our instincts proved true here, all three well, of us. No, I think Spectre made around sixty five million opening, if I if memory serves. So it's, I think it's, he, you know, I you know, I think seven, he, it's, he calculated the international. I think, but anyway. Oh yeah, which is not yeah. there. I think they're at what closer to like a hundred and forty overall. I think mm-hmm. you said with the with the ten day, you know, all the international plus this whatever. So. It's kind of a letdown a little bit in terms of the numbers for sure. Well, yeah. So um, they were 120 going into this week. So add eight, add. Okay. So they're at least at 185. My guess right. is, yeah, they'll they'll be probably be around 220, 230 now. Unless, but I sure. don't know what additional markets. I know it released in the UK. Does does it release everywhere else? Obviously, if China's factored in, it could be 350 for all we know after right. the first 10 days. Yeah. Well, and the thing I said to you, too, going into the movie was, you think this is a little bit of a gamesmanship, them trying to open up. We saw it on a Wednesday night for yes. a limited kind of IMAX thing. So they got Wednesday showings. They got Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and, and we're still underwhelmed. Spectre did not have that. I could say that they at best they had Thursday nighters, but mm-hmm. they definitely only really had the Friday, Saturday, Sunday numbers to get to up to a, a slightly better number than we saw here. And then we'll see. Maybe they get a little bit extra of a bump on, uh, you know, at least here in the States, uh, because we have, you know, Indigenous Peoples Day, Columbus Day coming up yeah. on Monday might get a little extra for people coming around, seeing that on a possible day off for them. So. It could get a little better news, but, you know, that is, uh, yeah. Uh, going down from original predictions is not is not what you want to hear. It's not what you want, unfortunately. However, you teased future podcasts for Mike, Mike, and Oscar to finish this outro, <laughs> to get back to the outro. So I really appreciate you for that, amongst all of these other things. But, yeah, we got Halloween Kills coming up, but we got box office questions coming up for Bond. What is it going to do in week two? How does it hold? What does it need to make? I know Mike One, who's become certainly the box office expert on Mike, Mike and Oscar. <laughs> Sorry, Mike, you don't have a lot you know, to accomplish there because I'm not great at it. Uh, but uh, he, he was right on with this one. He bet the under, he nailed it. And uh, we had a great night, the three of us together. Let's do that again as well. Let's go see more movies together. Let's keep talking. And uh, thank you. Thank you for sitting for an hour and a half. I knew it would be this way uh, uh-huh. on this podcast, but we're going to give people their money's worth. Hopefully I can uh, rise up in the editing. So, Thanks to everybody. Thanks to Andrew. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, Mike M at MM and Oscar. This is where I really suck, by the way. At MM and Oscar on Twitter. Otherwise, we're Mike, Mike and Oscar everywhere. Uh, Mike, Mike and Oscar dot com. I'm still kind of working on it. You put you gave me a good pep talk the other <laughs> night just to like, get this out. thing. Get this thing done. It's got 600 pages. We just got to get like 610 and figure out what we want to do Oscar-wise for the people, whether predictions or whatever, a blog. We're trying to figure that part of it out now. But, yeah, it definitely has the library, and uh, we will get that released to you. We have to. Like you said, just get it out. But thank you, my friend, and uh, we'll see all you guys on the other side uh, with, with Mike One coming back. Thanks, bud. Hey, thank you. See ya.